Sarah Hepla. I'm here to answer all and any questions for you. Oh, good. I have questions, Nancy Rommelman. What's happening? First of all, good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's not morning, kids. We uh, we had other things to do today. So we uh, what I'd like to know is why you're broadcasting from the set of a horror film. Uh, because I, you know, my my uh, camera came on, and it was like. Nancy was lurching towards the lens, like half in shadow and in total darkness behind her. And it looked like a movie still for like one of the ring movies. Except what, what I have in my hand. What are these? Can you tell Sarah? Hepla? You've got some candle. What are you well, doing? So listen to me. First of what all, seance I, is this? I don't no, know that I want to be a part of this. Everybody, <laughs> we're in danger. Let me explain. You know, it's not so easy to make a living as a freelance writer. Oh, no, they shut your oh, lights off. Uh, no, it wasn't that. I just decided I would start doing palm readings here. What? No, that's, this is not true. This is not true. But if it were true, by the way, I'd totally get one. <laughs> no. So check it out. So I, okay, so right, let's see. I was in LA and then I was in Portland and then I got home at like midnight. And later on that day, I had my Ukrainian friends come and stay with me, the people that I stayed with in Ukraine. And so I set up the studio for them. And one of the things I put in here was these, were these candles. I was like, these candles, no, I'm not, no one's paying me to advertise them and I don't know their brand. They're electric candles. Uh, my husband, my daughter and I were in an Airbnb last year in Houston. And there was like a little remote. We're like, what is this remote for? Oh, what is it for? You click it and all these candles go on in the room. That is okay. really cool. No. I liked this when I came to stay with you because by the way, I really love candles. I have like a, like a romantic, you know, watched too many soap operas kind of um, affection for, for candles, but I'm always worried I'm going to burn the place down. We Okay. Every time you say, all right, I'll definitely remember to turn out, blow out the candle. You don't. You don't. You these things, I got like nine of them. They're all different sizes. There was like 30 bucks or something. Anyway, I set them up here so there was like some nice low light because there were kids in here. Anyway, so I have another guest now. The, the Ukrainians left yesterday morning at six. And at eight, my other guest came in here. Uh, her name is Molly Lewis. Molly Lewis, I'll, I'll put a link to this. So Molly Lewis went to preschool and grade school with my daughter. We ran into her in the city recently. She is just, first of all, the most beautiful, lovely, lithe, charming young woman. She also happens to be like the world's greatest whistler. She naturally, whistles. and she goes of like, course. She's going to be, I always knew that about Molly. She, she's going to be at this club on Sunday night. So anyway, she was coming in. I'm also Whoa. friends with her mom who lives in Australia. So she's staying with me in the studio. Can, so I had the candle set up. Can you give me some insight into, into what makes one the world's best whistler? Like, does she well, have a certain technique I don't, okay. I don't know a lot about it. I've just seen videos of her doing it. And it's not like, you know, world's biggest hot dog eating champion or something. She whistles beautifully and artfully. And I'll put a, you know, and people want to work with her, like interesting artists and visual artists and, and symphonies. And um, she's just this interesting sort of ethereal creature and really, really nice and really polished. Anyway, I'll put a video to uh, uh, one of her, I'll link to one of her videos. And anyway, she's staying here. So I had the candles going. So I figured I would just, uh, I would use them to romance you. Yeah, well, now it looks kind of romantic. When I yeah. first came in, it looked totally scary. A little dark shadow. Yeah, it was like a whole dark shadow, lunging from ambush yeah. sort of situation. Um, can you whistle, by the way? I can. I can whistle two ways. I can whistle this way. Right? And okay, that was pretty good. That was that was like a B plus. Yeah. Thank you. I can whistle this way. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
So that's something my dad did. It's a, just a different way. To, I can anyway. I can whistle two ways. Do you know there are many people that cannot whistle? Just can't do it. You can do it. it that is like a C minus. Then you have the people that want to pretend they can whistle, but they don't blow out. They they go in. They go. Yeah, that's yeah. Like, it's just like they're sucking on a vape. Yeah, they just can't do it. Anyway, so yeah, I, I I like to whistle. My mother doesn't think it's. I guess she doesn't think it's ladylike. Every time I, she's like, "What's that? Stop that!" I'm like, "Okay, geez, I'm just trying to be Jimmy." Cricket. Nobody's ever gonna love you if you keep whistling two ways. <laughs> keep whistling and smoking. It's a well-known aphorism. Do you remember being told that? I remember because I smoked as a teenager, of course, and of course they were Newports. Um, and uh, my mother said, "No, you you cannot smoke on the street." Absolutely not. Women do not smoke on the street. I, I don't know. Women don't smoke on the street. Yeah, that was that was definitely not. That's like a not ladylike thing to yeah, do. You keep it in the house. I don't know. What do I know? She you keep smoked. it next to a dainty ashtray. <laughs> next to your mass and gill. I don't yeah, know. You, <laughs> I don't know. I I that's what she keep told it me near I, the cake that you're baking. Yeah. Speaking of oh hi, who? What did I just send you? A picture, picture of a cake that you just made. I did. I made a carrot cake. It looked beautiful. I love carrot cakes. I really like the icing on carrot cakes. Everybody. Why don't we just use that icing on so many other things? Why does it have to be confined to carrot cakes? You don't. And speaking of that, for a while, I don't know if they still have it, but um, you know, I shopped for a family for 5,000 years. That was my job, the grocery shopper, which I loved it. And in the cream cheese section, for a while... They had like cream cheese frosting, right? Like right next to the cream cheese. They made it. Philadelphia made it. It's like, yeah, yeah, we know what you want. And I would just buy it for the family and everybody would just eat it with a spoon. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Anyway, the cake is cute. And I just wanted to ask you whether you think it was better, if that image was better than the rat in the toilet bowl image I sent you yesterday. Yesterday... Nancy sent me this text message, you know, which I always try to pay attention to, right? She's my podcasting partner. So if she sends me something, it's usually really on point. You know, it's a pressing issue. It's an interesting story. And I got a text message yesterday that said, rat emerges from toilet in men's bathroom. And I was like, well, okay. I mean, I just, I, I wanted to, I was like, this is a strange thing to share, uh, but I'll go ahead and watch it. Because why? Because I'm a good partner. Because I'm a caring partner that believes in you. So I pressed play and I'm watching this long POV of a guy snaking in, you know, with his phone to a to a bet where a rat is about to emerge out of the toilet. And and then I start getting this message from Nancy. I didn't send that to you. I didn't send it. Okay. I really I didn't explain it to you yesterday how that happened. So you had sent me a link to Malcolm Gladwell talking to this podcast, The Forkful. And Sporkful. Actually, Sporkful. Oh, Sporkful. And it was very interesting. I liked it. I was walking down Sixth Avenue between like 27th. I was walking to the West Fourth Subway. For some reason, my phone was completely skitzing out. It kept like cutting out and I'd have to restart things and it would like bring up something I looked at three days ago. It was just, it was having a breakdown. And that particular little video I had looked at myself, never on my phone, somewhere at my house. Learning things about Nancy listen, right now, listen, deep listen. in the rabbit hole and of so, rats emerging from various uh, things. Look, look, we've got on palomamedia.com every day we have something called Beauty Mark, which can be something funny. It can be sports. It can be music. It can be something sad. But it's usually it's something visual. It, and I got this thing yesterday about this like, 80 foot snake or something that had been found in a toilet, not 80, but like a big, big giant snake. And I was like, that would be, and I didn't really like the video. It was very interesting, but 
I wanted to see, and I'm sorry to admit that I Googled this, I kind of have this weird fear that I'm going to like walk to the bathroom in the middle of the night and there's going to be a rat in the toilet bowl. And so I looked that up if it was a thing and it was, and that's it. I didn't go, I didn't look a lot. That was the one thing, but for some reason it then needed to, in my, my skitzed out phone, it sent it to you, but I really didn't. I didn't send it on purpose. So now you know. Now you know a fear. And that means yeah, and I even planted a fear of a giant rat coming out of a toilet for me. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you you mentioned that um, that podcast. I wonder if if we should chat about it a little bit right now. Um, sure. First of all, Malcolm Gladwell. You know, many of you know his work from the New Yorker. He's written seven million books too. I guess he's given some good tech talks that I haven't seen. But he was on this podcast. I, I didn't get to the end of it, but I listened to most of it talking about food and his sort of food idiosyncrasies. First of all, he's unbelievably charming. I mean, I've heard him talk, of course. I've actually seen him. I was at lunch one time and he was at the next table. You know, uh, I did that I did that event with him in Austin because, you oh, know, right. then it became a, a, a part of my Atlantic story, the conversation right. that he and I had. Yeah. So I met him in person. I will say he's somebody that really comes alive in front of an audience. Okay. I can see that. He was also, I mean, he was just, I mean, he's on this podcast was he's so bright he's so fast and he was so funny and he has such very very definite food idiosyncrasies and he tells stories about how they came about and stories about his family but the reason sarah had sent it to me was like whoa well he only drinks five liquids Period. He only drinks five liquids in fact the podcast is called malcolm gladwell only drinks five liquids. And right. I was fascinated by this idea that this had been something, it just, it's a very Gladwellian thing to do, right? That he's decided for efficiency's purpose. Like he goes on this little like crank rant about uh, how he can't stand how long it takes people to make up their minds at restaurants. Like it, it uh, just, I, just, just the, the, the time sink. I'm totally down. I, I'm with him there. This drives well. Uh, you know what I hate is the "where are we going to go" conversation. That's the time sink I can't stand. So, since I was very young, I was sort of not always. Now I know like tons and tons of people that are you know kind of interested and connected, and they have interests. And I love it when people like take say, "Oh, we're just going to go here." I love that. But for decades, I was always the person like, "Let's go to get this restaurant. Let's do that." I also had people that just weren't like big food people. Like they felt or felt a little intimidated. Like my ex, Tim, my daughter's dad. You grew up in Oklahoma, Tulsa, you know, Okamogi, Oklahoma. We're living in LA, going to these like crazy Italian restaurants, and he'd just be like, "Nanny, just order for me," because <laughs> it was it was a little intimidating. And I think people do get a little, um, you know, it takes them a little time. No, I'm I'm kind of with Gladwell on the uh, let's get rid of. Um, let's get rid of this like extraneous stuff or get things taken care of in advance so that we can do the other stuff. Like I don't want a lot of clothing. I want to know maybe what I'm going to eat in the morning. It's like, you just don't have to think about it. I mean, Buckminster Fuller famously did that and he quoted Obama as doing right. That, right. Well, this, yeah. So this whole, the reason I sent it to you in part, by the way, this was sent to me by my dear friend, Mary, who's a fan of the podcast. And Hi, I was Mary. like, Hi, Mary. And she's like my, uh, like I like to say, she's getting a PhD in podcast. She's always like my- <laughs> incredible source for these things. But anyway, um, she sent it to me and I, I sent it to you because it reminded me of that conversation we had around the fact that I eat the same things every morning mm-hmm. and afternoon, you know, and, and that idea that you had given me that structure equals freedom. Yep. Which was very much a part of this 
conversation. And it makes sense. Malcolm Gladwell is somebody that's done lots of different writing around the paradox of choice, the idea that the more choice we have, the harder it is to make them. You know, this is one of our problems in a consumerist, you know, affluent society. And so here he is breaking down his drinks into five drinks. Do you want to tell people what those five drinks are? Sure. Uh, We can switch off too, if you want. I'll start off. Uh, Water, uh, regular or sparkling, but no flavored sparkling. If someone brought a lemon with the water, that's fine because it's extrinsic, but no like cranberry, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, which so he calls an abomination. That's right. So that's number one. Okay. What's number two, Sarah? Tea. And he has some specifications around this one too. It's mostly black tea. He's not really big on things like Earl Grey, which he oh. finds sort of perfumed and chamomile. It's sort of, what does he call it? Fakakta? He called that Fakakta teas. But then yes, Earl Grey was a bridge too far. And a I bridge too far. I gotta kind of agree with that. Earl Grey is kind of like having a mouthful of aftershave. Yeah. 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 No, I totally agree. I I don't like it. And I think tea is like a completely underappreciated liquid here in America. Like, like there are so many amazing teas, but. Yeah. Uh, Number three would be espresso, not coffee. Never, never, never a cup of coffee, but espresso, which leads us to number four, which is milk, which uh, Milk. And this is sort of one where he doesn't like he doesn't drink a glass of milk. He just wants the milk to put in the espresso. Right. So that I mean, that that's take that boy. That's like, you know, that's using up one of your numbers, man. I know. Um, right. You know? And then the fifth is red wine. Now, red wine. I got to tell you, as a, you know, you're obviously actually you're going to be able to pontificate on this maybe more than I do because you were, I was not a drinker as a kid. I didn't Yeah, really- I was an old-fashioned lush. Right. Okay. So, you know, when you start, I actually, um, I'm working on this, um, someone's making a, a movie uh, based on a story. Well, not based on a story I wrote, but partly based on a star- story I wrote. So I'm a character in it. Okay. And um, he keeps calling me and asking me for questions because I'm sort of producer or consultant or something like that. And um, he said, okay, so when you were visiting Gacy, when you, you know, went across the, you were stopping at all these bars, what were you drinking? So I was 30 at the time. And I was like, oh my God, let me think, you know? I mean, like I'm stopping in bars in Shamrock, Texas. It's not like you're getting a, you know, a, a gin martini or something. And I said, I hate to admit this, but I think I was drinking vodka. Because when you're a kid, you don't know what to drink, right? Sure. You're not like, and it was like scotch, whiskey. Um, so yeah, um, but I do, like I do now have certain drinks. Like I'm going to go to a bar. It's the wintertime. I'm ordering a rye Manhattan. Like that's it. I don't have to think about it. And I also don't want your frou-frou drink menu with like 17 items in the drink, including a olive that has blue cheese in it. It's like a gag. So um, I can understand, like, just like have these things that you know you like. It doesn't mean you're going to be completely doctrinaire like he is, but it does make things move a little faster. Well, and he, he makes the point that one of the reasons, um, he made this rule is that he's aware that um, that people drink too much on average. And so he wanted to control that somehow for himself. And so he makes this rule around red wine, by the way, only 13.5%, which is the standard amount for red wine. It just means that like, it's going to be the the regular and lighter wines. I don't know how he's figuring out, is he really I, a guy like asking the, 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 the alcohol by volume. You no, know, so I can tell you, my husband and his friend Dario, we used to drink a lot of wine. They know wine. They used to like really big reds, 
And they would, we would be in a story. It's like, they're like, oh, 14.7. Like they looked yeah. at that right away. They kind of, they, it was a metric that meant something to me, to them physically and taste wise and all this. So I think it's a, it's a thing. People it's a do thing. love. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if back in my drinking days, if I had to choose one drink, I mean, it's so, I think I would have chosen beer. It was just like my first you love. love. I was yeah. such a beer girl. Yeah. And there's so much variety in it, you know? I would, you know, I would, I've never liked beer. I probably drink, I probably said this on this podcast, I probably drink two beers a year. Like you're someplace having Mexican food and it's hot and it just kind of feels right. But I don't, I don't like it. Beer also is, I think I learned not long ago. So umami, you know what umami is? It's like the sixth taste. And I realized that a lot of umami foods, beer is one, cheese is another. Uh, I love all these I don't things. like I don't like them. They're like I'm like a kid. I can't. Yeah, I'm like a new mommy freak. Yeah, you are. You're a new mommy babe. I'm like the, I'm on the opposite. It's like just give me like you know straight sugar from the bag. So okay, so, Nancy, if you yes. had five foods, uh, drinks, yes. five, five liquids. What are your five, five liquids? liquids? Water. Okay. I don't, I don't care. I mean, I I just I drink tons of water every day. Uh, coffee. Um. Rosé? I mean, I'm going to have to keep... Can I just say liquor? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I do like a Manhattan, I got to say. So maybe I'm going to keep whatever goes into Manhattan. That's probably more than one thing. Um, Oh, Fresca. (laughs) (laughs) Fresca is a fine soft drink. I love Fresca. Though I'm drinking Diet Coke right now. But um, yeah, Fresca, water, coffee... Rosé wine and um, yeah, well, I would if I if, there's going to have to be a hard liquor in there, okay. And if I had to choose between rye or tequila, I guess I'm going to go tequila. Tequila is more. You could drink it for longer times in the year. You can do some stuff with it. Whereas rye, it's good, but I mean, I'd have to give up Manhattan's. I wouldn't like that. But yeah, what about you? Okay, so it's it's water of all kinds, all all flavors welcome. Um, <laughs> in, the, in this cafe. tea. Coffee. So I would take coffee over espresso like you. Yeah, I don't yeah, care. I'm not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, coffee. It's, fine, it's also coffee. So relax. I'm going to throw in a wild card and say ginger beer. It's tasty. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And then my last one, I'm not proud of at all. I'm not proud of it all, but it's Diet Coke. Yeah, I'm drinking one right now. It's I mean, good. that's gross. That's gross that one of my five drinks would be Diet Coke. But you know what? Yeah. It's no what I drink shaming. on road trips and like, no, yeah, no it's coming here. Um, yeah. Um, I, so I have, so I, I don't, uh, this is kind of boring, I guess, but I am wondering and our, our listeners can let us know. First of all, Sarah, the name of this podcast lady. If memory serves, the name of this podcast is smoke them if you got them. Yes, it is. Um, thank you for joining us. Please tell your friends. Please sign up. Uh, please subscribe. If you pay for your subscription, I'll love you even more. I don't know if that's possible, but but it'll happen. Make um, it happen. I just want, yeah, make it happen. Come on, guys, you make it happen. Uh, so everybody in New York is sick, and I'm just wondering if, if other in other parts of the country people are sick. It's you just, just recovered from a really nasty cold. Uh, well, I don't, it wasn't a nasty cold. It was a just flu? like, a crazy yeah it felt like the flu it felt like it felt like my entire body was hot and ringing and like my skin hurt and couldn't barely function and then that went away and then there was like a ton of sweating super sexy and now just this kind of like a little droopy a little drippy but um everybody has it everybody has it so i'm wondering if it has not uh, migrated westward yet uh get ready
took a COVID test, not COVID, but I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's close cousin. So. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. What? Well, it might be coming. It might be coming out of Dallas. I'm just telling you, everybody, everybody has it. So, um, what else is going on here, lady? What do you want to talk about today? We got a few things on the, on the menu. Um, a few things that kind of drove me crazy, but, um, kind of. We shall talk about them in the calm. Yes. Rational voice. Yes. That we use as journalists. That's right. Um, so a story that came out, would, were you the one that sent it to me or did I send it to you? I don't remember. You sent it to me. I sent it to you, yeah. So it's called How Russian Trolls Helped Keep the Women's March Out of Lockstep. Um, it's by Ellen Barry. It was in the New York Times. She is, you You mentioned to me that she was a mental health writer. I didn't know that when I read the piece. Yeah, um, I'm not sure why this ended up in her beat, but it did. Yeah, uh, it's 4,000 words. So, you know, it's a big it's a big, big, long feature, and essentially, um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk through it a little bit, and Sarah, we can kind of go back and forth on this. Um, sure. Um, it basically is talking about how the women's march, which started uh, right after the election of Donald Trump, uh, they started organizing it, and the first march was, of course, in January of 2017. How well, how it fell out of lockstep, and in in uh, Ellen Barry's telling, uh, you know, five years later. It is uh, Russian, you know, disinformation and troll. It's it's uh, it's messages on Facebook and and uh, other. And actually, actually, you know what? I went back through it last night. She actually doesn't mention Facebook at all. She mentions because I did a search. It's Twitter, and she's talking about how you know some coordinated tweets at certain times had a very deleterious effect, uh, meaning they were kind of being, you know, made fun of and, 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 and nasty things were being said as happens on Twitter. Hello. Um, but especially against one of the leaders, um, of the women's March who came in was sort of like the second wave of people that came in. It was started by four women, white women. And then there was a three women of color or came on very shortly thereafter, uh, this woman named Linda Sarsour, who is a very controversial figure. Mm-hmm. And in my reading of the piece, um, I was very curious as to why five years later, um, uh, Sarsour, who's continued to behave pretty badly in many ways, why she was getting this sort of um, editorial rehabilitation and or or they were attempting, the Times was attempting to do this sort of rehabilitation and say, listen, what happened to the Women's March was not her fault or the Women's March fault. It's, it's, it's the Russians. And I said to you as an editor, I said, Sarah, this 4,000 words, okay, this is not even like a short opinion piece, which, you know, this is a big, big, chunky researched feature. Why this story now? Which when you are a journalist, you learn this very, very quickly. Your editor will say, well, why are we telling this story now? Why are we giving it page space? Why are we giving it sunshine? Why this story now? So we, I'm going to give a little more history of this, but I want to I ask you right now. You were an editor for, what, 12 years? How long? Longer? Not, not quite that long, seven years, something like okay. that. So from your POV, mm-hmm. why this story now? And also just as a side note, would you have assigned this story or taken this pitch and said, sure, let's, let's try it? Okay. So my answer to why now is because I guess a few years ago, we got the story of how the Women's March fell apart. And, you know, if you don't know about that, we'll probably end up talking a little bit more about that as we walk through this story. But it was largely a story about infighting and some some 
backstabbing and and financial alliances like un, unsavory political alliances amongst the the leadership. Okay, this offered a new wrinkle. It was saying, okay, that did happen, but there were forces that we didn't know that were also working to inflame those divisions. And so, you know, by by looking at the way that Russian disinformation campa- campaigns, which certainly do exist, I don't think there's a question that that this exists. The question is, what kind of effect did it have? And this story is attempting to, su- is suggesting that it had a, a larger effect than you might imagine. And I think the argument for it is, a sort of gut check for the American public to think about, you know, when they participate in these online pylons and attacking other people, you know, that we are basically acting in lockstep with people that would do us harm. Does that make sense? Yes. A question occurred to me as you were saying this. Um, Do you think it's possible, too, that... The Women's March is something that is uh, near and dear to a lot of, you know, women or maybe to the New York Times. I don't know. And that printing this story right now is a way to kind of continue to give it relevance. It's to get it back into people's eyeballs. I think I think that's an interesting idea. And also, you know, the Women's March was one of, if not the largest, like, like mass demonstration um, of recent memory. And it was really quite astonishing the way that it fractured. And I think it's been a little bit like we are now in a moment where Roe v. Wade was overturned. It would be really nice to see more of a collective you know, movement, but a lot of people feel burned out. A lot of people feel disillusioned by what happened with the Women's March. Yeah, I think you've made a good point. Like maybe this is a way to rehabilitate that idea, you know, that it wasn't, it wasn't that like, like the, the Russians did it, right? <laughs> you know, we didn't do it to ourselves. Right. It's like, it's like there's, you know, you've got a, you've got a, a fire that's burning and the embers are kind of burning down, but there's like this one ember. And if I poke it, you know, with the poker here, it's going to flare up a little bit. And I, I mean, that, that to me is sort of one explanation. And I guess I could kind of say that too, because I did a little bit of um looking into, I, I, I looked at the numbers um, that that um, that um, Ellen Barry cited, and she cited that Twitter accounts known to be Russian uh, contained two thousand six hundred and forty two tweets about Ms. Sunsor, about Linda Sunsor, and forty six Russian accounts pumped out four hundred and fifty nine original suggestions for a hashtag rename the women's million women's march, like things like you know I don't know you know. Just like uh, cat, sad cat ladies was one of them. Yeah, and I yeah. was like, oh, I would have totally gone to that march. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, I just wanted to point out or point it out to myself that there are 500 million tweets per day. OK, there are 500 million tweets per day. And we are now. Talking really? About- that is crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. And then you're talking about 2,642 were about Sunswar. I mean, I-, I don't know. It strikes me as. You know, it's sort of like we we spent two years on the Mueller investigation and after, you know, at the end of the day, they found out, I mean, there were obviously this was, you know, there were more tentacles to it, but they found out that the disinformation ads in 2016 on Facebook were $100,000 and 3,000 ads, which is like 
pretty mingy mm-hmm. uh, when we're talking about everything that's sort of, um, you know, flying by on Facebook constantly. So anyway, I, I, I was very curious to buy as this story now. Um, I think that the Women's March started, uh, well, we know that it started. We know that it started, started in 2016. Uh, four women on Facebook, they got connected in a Facebook group because they wanted, they had the idea of a female-centered march because there was so much energy and so much animosity going around toward Donald, Donald Trump. And I well remember this. I mean, we many of us remember how inflamed we were at this time. I mean, I'm sure some people were inflamed because they were delighted that Trump was being elected. But you had such a massive amount of this like sort of rocket fuel and people wanted a place to put it. So these women, through a connection, they got connected with a New York City influencer who I'm going to quote some of the quotes I'm, 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 I'm going to be quoting from two articles now. One is from a tablet magazine article uh, by Jake Siegel and Leah McSweeney, which uh, came out in December 2018. It was a 10,000 word article. It kind of blew the lid off of a lot of the stuff that had been happening in the Women's March. And um, they they called this influencer. He said they said he was at the nexus of altruism and celebrity, which for me, is a little <laughs> bit of a red flag, okay? But, right. Okay. So the four organizers— And his they, name is what? Michael Skolnick? Is that what Skolnick, his name is? Michael Skolnick. Skolnick. Yeah. So the the original people, they're like, cool, that sounds great. They're like, we really think we need some women of color. Good idea. He he has a some kind of organization. He re- he recommends two that are working within his organization. Again, okay, a little, little cl- close there, but okay. Their names are— are uh, Carmen Perez and Tamika Mallory, and somehow Linda Sarsour, who has been dubbed by someone, I thought she dubbed it herself, but you said uh, recently that she didn't. She's the homegirl in a hijab. She's from Brooklyn. She's, you know, she's got the light talking. She's talking. She's going to do things here. And we got people against us and the cops and the enemies and everything. Like, I know, I know this girl. I I mean, I don't know her. Um, She's Muslim. And um, so they come in and now they join forces with these four four women. now, some of these women, the second the second uh, wave here are a little problematic because they are either fans of or followers of uh, Nation of Islam's Louis Farrakhan, who is a pretty well-known anti-Semite and very vocal about it. However, they, they start, they decide they're going to have a meeting. This is all pre the Women's March in January 17. They they meet uh, at Chelsea Market in New York. Doesn't they? They can't find a place to sit. They go to a rooftop bar, and according to the tablet article, it was not a very uh, propitious first meeting. It got very heated, and there was discussion about how the white women were centering themselves, uh, and. Uh, one of the women that were was at that meeting countered that, well, you know, she's Jewish. She shouldn't be considered white. It just it became this like giant intersectional mess. However, however, you know what? All that stuff, it, I'm not even going to say they put it to the side. I'm going to say the propulsion of the people in the country put it to the side. They needed a place to put their energy, their physical energy, their finances. They needed to be heard. And what we had was the Women's March, which was massive. I mean, millions and millions of people across the country. I, I don't know. Did they march where you were? Was oh, there yeah, absolutely. There was a march here in Dallas. It was it was very big. Um, yeah. A lot of my friends went. And uh, yeah, like I heard from so many people that uh, that absolutely loved that uh, that march. The, the experience. I mean, I think we've talked about it. It's like, you know, if you there are there are communal experiences. You can go to you go to a mosh pit, which is if you've never done it, I recommend it. It's super like really? Oh, oh my God. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you just feel like this uh, release. Uh, you can get this feeling 
at a sporting event, at a religious event, anything where you're sort of like you feel like you're part of this swell. I actually rarely have felt part of that swell once at a Trailblazers game and once in a mosh pit. But in any case, people did. Also at a concert, at a music concert, because all those things that Nancy just listed, I did, didn't work for me. So I don't want people to feel locked out of the ecstatic communal experience. There's other that's, ways to have this. That's right. So, um, so what happens? Well, there's it's just this thing is incandescent. It gathers, it gathers millions of dollars. People are giving millions of dollars. Of course they are, because it's just like the ACLU, which was like kind of poking along and doing its job. Well, after Trump was elected, everybody sent them so much money because they felt that the ACLU was going to fight the things that they didn't like about Trump. Well, we see what has happened there. Oh man, that's another episode. But um, anyway, it's gathering heat and light. It's gathering money. Uh, Glamour magazine names the the women the women of the year. Fortune magazine says they are among the world's greatest leaders. The country has an appetite for it. There's tons and tons of money. There's also infighting. There's also problems with the fact that you know the 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 second wave here are still like pretty much pro Farrakhan and are going to, you know, rallies where he is, where he's talking about the satanic Jews, which is like, this is not really a kumbaya thing, right? Well, they decide to have this kumbaya meeting. This is in summer 2018, I believe, at this place called the Omega Institute, which as a matter of fact, is right up near my mom's in upstate New York. I'd never been there. It's kind of a... It's kind of a new agey place, but they also have like literary things. My friend Nick Flynn has has taught a class there. Mm-hmm. There's like a lake you can sit by. But I guess they had a big meeting there to like, we're all going to like, we're all going to come together. Well, who also is at this meeting apparently? Because again, it's become this incandescent thing and you attract all kinds of people, including there's a law firm. Uh, they may be national. I know them in New York called uh, called uh, Skaden Arps. I think that's how, how you pronounce it. Skadden Arps. It's a white shoe law firm, which means it's very like, you know, to the manner born kind of. And some of the originals, so they, they have the Kubaya meeting and uh, some of the women, the original four women are getting on, I think it's them, maybe someone else that's involved in it, is getting on the bus. And the Skadden Arps lawyer comes in and says, okay, you need to sign this signing over. You're not part of it anymore. It's not your movement anymore. It is, you know, uh, it's Linda Sarsour's, Tameka Mallory's and Carmen Perez's. It's like, excuse me, what? So it's messy. It's messy on the inside. How else is it messy besides this sort of, you know, internecine? Is that how you say it? Internecine? Internice, internecine sign. I never know how to say that word. Internecine. Internecine. Let's not say it. Internecine? Let's say internal. Let's say internal. Let's say internal. There's internal machinations. There's problems. And uh, one of them are, um, well, okay. I'm going to get back to what I think the main problem is, but let me just jump ahead a little and say one of the main problems are the finances. It's like they have brought in millions of dollars. And since it's this incandescent movement and these people are now the heroes of the day, uh, hi, you know, journalists come around asking like, well, where are you spending all this money? I guess the Intercept did and they're, you know, they didn't get a response. And the Daily Beast, I got, I sometimes slag on the Daily Beast, but this is pretty cool. They actually show up at the offices and are like, hi, we'll, we'll take those financials now. And they're like, oh, uh, uh, our copier is broken. Uh, yeah. And the dog right. ate my homework. Right. So anyway, but the bigger issue, I'm going to say, I'm going to circle back now to how this happened. You have all this energy. People have all this energy to fight Trump. They've got, they want to put it somewhere. They want to be part of a movement. Well, okay. But for a movement to get where it's going, it kind of needs to know where it's going, right? What is Mm -hmm. your mission? What's your mission? And 
the mission of the women's movement was kind of not exacting, let's say. Um, I read about it in, uh, in the tablet article, I believe. And one of, this is a quote, uh, one of its missions was a safe, safe and healthy environment free from structural impediments. Okay, let's do that again. Safe and healthy environments free from structural impediments, and especially for women of color and poor women and trans women. Okay, what, what is, okay, what does that mean? Structural impediments. So you want to create healthy environments free of structural impediments. Okay, uh, I might want to build a house, but like, you have to you have to have some practical things. If you're going to do these things, you have to do them. And they didn't. And they weren't. And it turned out the money was not going to the movements that they claimed it was or maybe aspired to go to. So they were having lots of problems. Okay. So I, I wrote a little something down here. Um, I wrote last night. It's like, so look, you need to be organized and honest and have clear goals and not be too in love with your own image in the spotlight. And if you do these things, maybe you can move a movement forward. But they didn't. It was a big mess for which they blamed other people. Racism, sexism, and maybe quietly the Jews, right? I mean, this is going on. So in 2019, Michelle Goldberg, who is a really interesting columnist for the Times. Mm-hmm, I mean, she mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I like her. agree with what she's talking about. She's also like she's come. She's one of the very few writers, you know, well-known journalists today that if she gets something wrong, she comes out later and says, I was wrong, which is amazing because you never see that anymore. How many people that like like. That, that were so in Jesse Smollett's camp that they were just sure that, you know, all this incredible, like, systemic racism, we have to fix all this and everything. How many of them have come back and say, we got it wrong? Right. No, sorry, he was a fabulous. They don't. People just don't, which they should. And I hope that I do when I'm wrong. And please tell me when I'm wrong. It's fine. I don't mind people telling me. Anyway, in 2019, uh, Michelle Goldberg wrote a piece for The Times called the heartbreak of the 2019 Women's March. This is right before the march, okay? So we're now two years in. It's called the heartbreak of the 2019 Women's March. It's fracturing over anti-Semitism, but maybe implosion was inevitable. And if you will humor me, I'm going to read a pretty long quote because I think it gives, is that okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm just going to settle in. Everybody settle in. in, Go get get a Diet Coke or what, Fresca or whatever, and then we'll we'll quiz you on which you like better. Hmm. Fresca. Okay. Um, Serious allegations of anti-Semitism have dogged some of the Women's March leaders for over a year. Uh, And she goes on to say uh, that Perez and Sansor have tried to make public amends. But on Monday, this apology, this is in 2019, I think late 2018 or very, very early 2019. But on Monday, this apology tour hit a snag when Mallory appeared on, on Lewis when Mallory appeared on the daytime talk show The View and refused to denounce the Nation of Islam leader Louis Farrakhan, whom she called once called the GOAT, or greatest of all time. Um, uh, during his speech, he gave a shout-out to Mallory and the Women's March, and afterward, she posted positively about the event on social media. On The View, rather than disavowing Farrakhan, Mallory said only, I don't agree with many of Minister Farrakhan's statements. Oh, sorry, I mi- uh, la- sorry. Last, I missed the part that that year, earlier in the year, um, dur- uh, he had called. He, she had attended a rally where Farrakhan called, uh, railed against satanic Jews. Okay, all right, right. This is again. This is uh, Michelle Goldberg. Writers I admire have argued that there are good reasons that some black activists hesitate to disavow Farrakhan. 
Last March, the journalist Adam Sewer wrote in The Atlantic of the successful violence prevention work that the Nation of Islam has done in impoverished Black communities. Mallory told him how Nation of Islam women supported her when her son's father was murdered in 2001. Seward described a sense in some Black communities that the nation, in quotes, is present for Black people in America, most deprived and segregated enclaves when the state itself is not present, to say nothing of those who demand its condemnation. Okay, back to Goldberg. Yet even if you're willing to accept rationalizations for associations with an anti-Semite and point the point of organizing is to build political power. And in that respect, the leaders of the Women's March have fallen short. So this is 2019. This is like very early. It's either December 2018 or January 2019. Uh, 2019. We are now more than two years later. This is what the Times was writing then. Michelle Goldberg brings the receipts. All right. Since then, uh, Sansour in 2020, for one example, uh, her organization held a day of action that was open to all minus cops and Zionists. Okay. Zionists. Yeah. She's said that she doesn't believe Zionists can be part of the feminist movement. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, Which is just, I also find this um, whole anti-cop thing, though she's been anti-cops for a long time in the summer of 2020 to be somewhat opportunistic. It's like, what's the flashpoint now? Okay. I, I will get in on that though. Also, Someone sent to me yesterday because they saw I was tweeting about this in 2012. Oh, where did she appear? She appeared on Russian television. Okay, so now the Russians are Sarsar's enemies. But back then, she was happy to spread her mission via Mm -hmm. Russian television. Anyway, it's now September 2022. So here are my questions for you, Sarah. Why are we having the retread now? And is, I mean, is Ellen Barry trying to like throw people off the scent of the women's march, creating its own trouble problems. I don't know. I, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I think maybe they're pushing back on this idea um, that it was only the infighting. You know that there were other forces that were that were served when women fight other women. Okay. Well, I, then I get back to the ads. The two thousand. Six, the 2,642 tweets when there are 500 million a day. Like, are we, are we going to say that that, I mean, okay, I can, I can be with you here and say, okay, it, it, it had an effect. Sure it does. I mean, we see something online and we think we get super angry about it. And then we find out later, oh shit, I got, you know, I, I, I stepped in it. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, I should have, I should have done my homework, but we do do our homework because our journalists and we, we have to, you know, we have to be accountable for this stuff. I just am wondering Again, why this story now? What and does the Times, for reasons that, and I'm I'm being totally frank here, for reasons that I don't understand, what is the long game here? What is why are we why are we rehabilitating Linda Sarsour? What there's a billion people in the world to celebrate or rehabilitate or talk about their lives. Why are we why are we taking up four thousand words to make her look less culpable, even if it's true? Why? Well, I mean, presumably this, the, the author of this believes that, you know, while she's had some missteps, that she got unfairly railroaded. Um, I I think she's not somebody that I'm, I'm particularly fond of. Um, but, you know, but the lashing was pretty bad. She lost a lot of her... She did. And, and I... 
I don't want anybody. Look, I I don't like anybody being piled on in in in, in any situation. Like that that's not the way to solve it. And and it does feel terrible. And it does, you know, she's got, you know, thousands and thousands of people piling on her. I don't like it. But at the same time, you know, you can write a lot about a lot of people that had these kinds of things happen. I just I just don't I it eludes me why we are reading this story now. I I just well, I don't get it. To me, I see it more as like both things can be true, right? So, um, so the so the, the women's march uh, leaders ended up in a circular firing squad, which so often happens in a lot of these liberal organizations. I think one of the unfortunate things about intersectional feminism, maybe in particular, is that it, it seeks to be so much more inclusive, but because it's so focused on identity, it creates a kind of hierarchy and of of grievance. And there was a lot of, you know, between blacks and Jews. And I mean, this is the, the idea is to bring us together and everyone ends up focusing on their differences. I mean, I think this is like a huge problem, like in politics and in life right now is my God, we are so focused on the differences between us. And the more that we focus on those minute differences, even if they're major differences, the more we end up divided. And, um, was there a sort of this tacit uh, understanding or not understanding, but this tacit assumption that if we were all women, we were all going to get along, which is just, I, 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 I've never heard something so idiotic in my life. I mean, it, it, it is, I, I've known since I was, you know, nine years old that you get a bunch of women together. It is not going to be smooth sailing. I, right. I well, that's always been the story on, and, you know, and the feminist movement in general, if my, mem- my memory of, of Michelle Goldberg's piece is that it talks about the long history of infighting in the feminist movement. You know, there's a, there's a quote, uh, I think it's Ty Grace Atkinson who says, you know, sisterhood kills mostly other sisters. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Well, uh, so anyway, you know, so, so, th- so, I think that is true. And then I think at the same time, we can also acknowledge that there are Russian trolls that are that are trying to capitalize on our division. And that when we do that, we serve people that would like to see us divided. I, I don't think that's a bad thing to make people aware of. Okay. I, I, I know I, that it, it irritated you. Tell me a little bit more about why it irritated you so much. You felt like it was... It was um, it was exonerating the I, the failures of the leadership. I think it was taking something that was probably an extremely small uh, part of why the uh, why the movement failed, like maybe I mean infinitesimal, and uh, and making it very big and making you know it's got all the buzzwords you know Russia disinformation Twitter and then. It, it was like flashing something shiny at a bird. Like, look over here. It's like, well, but that's not that's not why this movement failed. Right, right, this, right. And right, I, fair enough. And we know that Russian disinformation has become a kind of boogeyman that has become yeah. a stand-in for a lot of our own a lot of our own problems. Um, you know, there was a there was a piece that ran in it's a cover story in New York magazine, and I want to recommend it because it's so good. And it's it's called The Sordid Saga of Hunter Biden's Laptop. And uh, it's by the great okay. Olivia Nuzzi. And um, yeah, I, I adore. Yeah, she's, she's so cool. I have such a girl crush on her. Yeah, we all do. Um, and Andrew Rice. And, you know, when when Hunter Biden's when that story came out, I mean, a lot of people suggested that that was Russian disinformation. Well, it's not. I mean, there is some mystery as to 
where that information came from. But like, uh, you should read this story uh, if you're curious about that. It is a gripping and wonderfully told little like detective story um, of how the whole thing unwinds. It's gripping. Um, but, but but just remember, just remember, because of the political environment we, we live in, how completely ready people were to believe that it was Russia. And I mean, to the point where Twitter took down the New York Post's account and would not let them post about the Russian the, about about the Hunter Biden story. Right, story. right. Well, and and Mark Zuckerberg was on Joe Rogan talking about how the yep. FBI had yep. said, you know, we think this is a. Uh, you know, this is disinformation, you know, so they suppressed it for a few days. I mean, yeah, it's really, I mean, it was, it was, it showed a lot of cracks in the system. You know, one of the, I, I read an interview with, with Olivia where she was saying, you know, somebody was asking her why she did this story. And she was saying, you know, like, it was really weird to me that the deficit of information on, on the left around that laptop. And I knew that if this had been Don Jr.'s laptop, if this had been Trump's kid, you know, that it would have been an enormous roar. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. Of course. Yeah. I, I, I used to think that when, uh, I used to think that we're not really tangential, but you know, when, uh, pictures of, um, Melania Trump, I mean, she was a swimsuit model or a model model, you know, before she was married and there's plenty of nude or semi nude pictures of her out and about. And like, you know, whatever. Like, I don't. The Republicans didn't make a really big deal out of it. The Democrats didn't make it a really big deal of it. But I thought, well, if it had been Michelle Obama, you know, when she came in with bare arms to a thing, it was like, oh, oh my god, it's just you know, that's so arms. true. Yeah, like they the 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 right totally cut Melania a break on that as they should have. But yeah, that, as they should have. I mean, yeah. we actually have magnets. Yeah, in the, the bare arms. I forgot about that silliness. Yeah. What nonsense. What nonsense all this politics is. Um, um did you wanna where do you wanna switch over to yeah, I, do. Uh, I do. I'm gonna hand this one to you, Sarah. Yeah. Okay. So the other story we wanted to talk about was a story that ran in the Atlantic. Um, this was a piece that was titled Segregating Sports by Sex Doesn't Make Sense. And you know, I th- this is a story that kind of it, it, it points out that, you know, a lot of the the conversation around kids sports has been around trans athletes and where they belong um, and what we're going to do about that. And according to this author, that has kind of obscured the much bigger question, which is why do we divide sports by sex at all? OK, so um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about, you know, how this story gets unfolded. By the way, did I say this was written by an author named Maggie Mertens? Um, So this story opens with um, a middle school female in the Bronx who wants to play football um, on the middle school team. Uh, She's a scrappy, you know, snowboarder, you know, and uh, she's having to jump through all these sorts of hoops that the boys do not. And it's it's you know pretty obnoxious. It's based on some some legislation around from like 1985, um, and sh- and so the author goes on to say, school sports are typically sex segregated, but it's becoming more common for these lines to blur, especially as Gen Zers are more likely than members of previous generations to reject a strict gender binary altogether. Maintaining this binary in youth sports reinforces the idea that boys are inherently bigger faster and stronger than girls in a competitive setting, a notion that's been challenged by scientists for years. 
and mm-hmm. and that's where I sort of stopped and was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> um, hold on, are we this this a notion? The idea right. that boys are inherently bigger, faster, and stronger than girls in a competitive setting. Um, that is, uh, it's actually, this is one of those places where you feel like you don't really need the science on this. You have common sense. And we know, we know that this is true. Um, we also know that ideas around sex and gender are being complicated by different studies. Uh, at the same time, the idea... <laughs> The idea that this is a notion that's been challenged by scientists for years is very confusing. Um, she goes on to say decades of research have shown that sex is more complex, complex than we think. And though sex differences in sports show advantages for men, researchers today still don't know how much of this to attribute to biological difference versus the lack of support provided to women athletes to reach their highest potential. Which, which is where I stopped. And um, I think you and I spoke about this previously. And I said, so I rode crew in college just for a year. And um, I was on the, you know, I was on the freshman girls rowing team. And um, we, we had to train pretty hard, actually. In any case, so if I'm reading the article right, um, they she is suggesting that scientists are suggesting that if I had had the right um, both physical, you know, opportunities and the right social support, then I would have, you know, maybe grown six inches and gained 60 pounds and been as strong as a man. And I could have maybe rode on the men's team. This is not so. This is, there's, this is illogical. And everybody knows that. So again, we're going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to let you go on here because you know more about this than I do. And this is a little bit of a twist on why this story now. For me, this story is very much, what is the long game here? What is the what is the objective of suggesting that, in fact, there really aren't, or there may not be biological differences in terms of men and women? Um, you know, we're just not sure. And when she said, or she wrote something along the lines of, and, and you said it, I've forgotten it now, um, you know, um, researchers are now showing. And I was like, well, this is telling you more about the researchers than it is about the research. It's telling you that they're looking for something that, I mean, you might be able to find certain shaded things. There was a little interesting part in that article that said certain um, emotions can release different hormones, which we know. I mean, we know there's fight and flight and all that kind of stuff. But not to the extent that if you put me, let's say, as an 18-year-old Nancy in some constant sense of I must, you know, grow stronger and bigger and mightier in order to survive, I'm not going to grow six inches and put on 60 pounds. It's just never going to happen. I'm sorry. And if that were the case, we would see already historically vastly different sort of um, proportions in, uh, in men and women. Meaning, like, if you were in a constant emergency environment, like, what would happen to your body? Sorry. I mean, it, th- this is the kind of thing. So this reminds me a little bit of that um, maternal myth 
the maternal instinct is a myth story that we read right. in the New York right. Times um, that was also looking at, you know, the ways that maybe, okay, the science is a little bit more complicated than we thought. It's not, you don't want to be essentialist about it. Not all boys are better than all girls. Okay, yes, of course. And in fact, uh, you know, support given to women athletes to reach their highest potential, they probably could be a little bit better. But sure. see, this is about the ends of the spectrum, right? So it's that at the ends of the spectrum, you know, the biggest boy is so much faster, stronger than the biggest girl. Oh, you know? I, I- I, I watched a, a video yesterday. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in the show notes um, because we were talking. You you were gonna mention something about a soccer team, I think. And I looked up yeah. trying to look at discrepancies. And Serena Williams was on David Letterman. I don't never a number of years ago, maybe 2015, and she said something. Um, what is his name? Andy. He's a big tennis player. I'm forgetting his last name. And she's like, Oh, he was the men's champion. Roddick. No, that was well. That's a good one. That's from back in the day. Um, okay, I can't. British. I was so excited that I came up with a tennis know, player's that name. Was so good. Anyway, Aww. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, she said, "Oh, if if we played, um, he'd he'd win six oh six oh in five or six minutes, maybe ten. Period." And she's like, "That's that's just the way it is." She's like, "They are faster. They are stronger. Their service stronger. It's just." And she's the best tennis player on the planet. Yeah. Okay, she'd lose two sets in in six minutes, and she understands this, and she's. She is at the apex, and you can definitely not say that she did not get the training or support. It's it is it's a fact. So uh, you're going to go on with this, but again, why are we reading this article? What's the goal here? The goal is, I think, to expand opportunities for girls in sports, but I think it's a wrong-headed. I think this particular approach is wrongheaded because I think it it moves toward pushing girls out of competitive sports. Because if you mix the genders, I think you will find a lot of girls will just not want to participate. I mean, I, I might be projecting here, um, but like I would not feel comfortable with that. And you know, it's it's. I, I think it's it's interesting that the that the example that starts this is one that's in middle school. Okay, and so middle school is that age that's still kind of pre-pubescent. Yep. Um, and so, like, I can see the idea of mixing sports, like getting rid of sex segregated sports in elementary school, for instance. Like, you, you'd have a much better argument for that. My daughter actually always was, I mean, in elementary school. Right. Like, boys and girls, they, they constantly played together, which was great. And especially when we were, when my daughter was eight, we moved into a new street in LA and the boy across the street was like six months older than she was. They knew each other from school. When they were eight, nine, and 10, these kids were like the same size, the same speed, the same curiosity. And they went out, they didn't really cause hell. They would like take fruit from people's trees and climb. And they were, it was so fun to see at that age how kind of equal they are if they're if they were both kind of like rangy athletic kids so but then that changes and then like six months later he was six two okay you right. know this just it just it just changes there is a time when boys and girls 
are pretty physically say now it's not we can't say that they have the same interests necessarily you know and so boys will maybe going off and, and segregating and doing some kind of sports and girls are more like that talking or socialization in a different way but i'm i think that's cool they should be playing together and roughhousing and playing football and wrestling and everything when they're kids but then that will change their bodies will change their interests will change and one thing i wondered about this article if you, for some reason, did start to say, well, you know, it's going to be better and maybe opportunity and maybe girls and X and Y and Z. And so we're going to uh, we're going to change the rules, We'll change the rules and make it that, you know, you can't just have boys on the football team. It's like, what is the goal here? Is the goal to take something away from men's sports or something that they've gravitated toward? Does that feel like a win? Does that give joy to anybody? Who does that give joy to? And the second part of that question is, Sarah, when we were getting picked for teams, like when I was a kid, I was usually second to last. Okay. Oh, full on. Yeah. I was a spaz. On my brother's like, you could break your arm rolling up the crawl window. I was just spaz. I was not a good, so not I, good I, athlete. No, There's a no, reason we became writers. That's right. I was not going to get picked. And I think that even if you start like imposing these things, like, okay, sorry, no more girls, no more boys. We're going to do it all together. People are going to self-select, man. They're going to sell, they're going to want the biggest, they're going to want the advantages on their team. We are not going to be in like some kumbaya moment where nobody cares about winning. If you're playing sports, I'm sorry. It's about winning. It's about beating the other team usually, or, or beating the other player, beating the other opponent. Um, you know what? Go ahead. You want it? You want it? Let's let's take, take track just for the hell of it. Let's take track and let's put, you know, let's have the men and women running together. What's going to happen? The men are going to win? Uh, yeah. Every time. Yeah, they're taller. Every time. So I, I, this, this was sort of a twist on why this story. Now, this for me is what is the long game here? Because, or maybe they don't have one. Maybe this is just a, a stepping stone toward the way we're thinking about the sexes. I don't know. Well, I think it's a, it's, it's a way, <laughs> again, to complicate the, the conversation around sports, which has mostly been focused on the trans issue. This is one that's taking even a wider lens and asking you to, you know, why are we even doing this? Why are we even sex segregating sports at all. And in fact, you know, this is something that that has been happening in some different schools. Like they have they have um, stopped sex segregating um, bathrooms in some places kids to sort this. of solve the the bathroom problem. They hate kids hate this. I have talked to kids. They hate this. They're like, I'm not going to the bathroom all day. I, I would hold my I would hold it all day long and end up like peeing my pants. No, especially the girls don't like it. They don't like it. And I, I, I don't know if the boys like. It. I remember just talking to the girls like, we don't like it. We would. There's no. There. You want some privacy when you're peeing or pooping. You just do. You don't even want anybody else to be in the bathroom with you. But now there's going to be a boy there. No, I, I think it's. I, I realize we are. You know, politically, this is a very hot potato, but. I, I just don't see how how is this advancement in general? Like, how are we advancing the culture? I mean, look, if you're at a campsite, you're just going to use the bathroom. Like, there's nothing you can do. But in a school setting, when you have the opportunity, maybe, I mean, I can't understand, like, having three bathrooms, like, men, that's, women, yeah. and then whatever you, you go where you want. You yeah. don't care. Go where yeah, you want. That's, I would be in favor of that. I got no problem with that at all. And, you know, when you go to restaurants now, but it's usually just you in the restaurant. Yeah. Um, in the restroom, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Though I have, I have been in restaurants uh, in New York where it's just like, okay, guys and girls together. Okay. I've been to a few of those too. I don't I mean, like them. I'll be honest. Okay, but I'm not six. I okay? know that's I'm the not, thing. I'm not eight years old. 
you know, I could, it's, I'm a, I'm a grown woman and I could, and then it was fine. I didn't really care. Do, little, do you remember that in out the, the, do you remember the show Allie McBeal? That was one of the yeah. things about, it's this, it was this like zeitgeist show in the, like around the turn of the century. And then now like nobody ever talks about it. It's like, we've had this collective agreement to forget that Allie McBeal ever happened. <laughs> okay. Excuse me. But it was big. And one of the things about that like progressive law firm is that they had a mixed gender bathroom or new, a gender neutral bathroom. Huh. Well, wow, that was that was a long time ago. That yeah. was like 20 years ago, right? Yeah. Or more. David yeah. E. Kelly saw the future. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, so this is, to me, this story is um, part of a, what I would call sort of like good intentioned but wrongheaded equity push to make everyone equal um, in ways that erases certain differences that are essential to their, to their thriving. You know, and this is, you know, I've, I've been saying for years, I feel like we've just done a really bad job of balancing equal opportunity and biological difference. And this is a, a you know, and, 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 and it, it causes problems. Like, I don't think little girls, like, I think girls should be able to play in boy sports and rough house, but I don't think teaching women to behave and act like men um, necessarily serves them. You know, I, I've been reading, um, the case against the sexual revolution, which is a provocative new book by Louise Perry, who is a British writer. And, uh, she focuses a lot on how, you know, hookup culture and a, and a, and a culture of casual sex has damaged women who tend to benefit from, from more, connected sex, monogamous relationships. And, um, and for a long time that was seen as sort of like gender essentialist, uh, like why can't women have, you know, fuck like men. And it's like, okay, well, you've had decades of that. And a lot of the women that did are kind of like, yeah, I don't really like that. Um, but you know, she was recently on the Andrew Sullivan podcast and he asked her like, what do you think is the biggest mistake that we've made in feminism? And she said, not acknowledging the asymmetry between the genders. The, the asymmetry is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I I was in uh, Portland last week and I, I ran into a friend of mine who has three daughters, but she told me now she has one son, one non-binary and one daughter. And um, the daughter had had um, top surgery um, right before her 16th birthday. Um, and there was a woman also working at the same place. It was kind of, there was no one else around except some employees. And, um, and she said something like, yeah, you know, breasts aren't important. And I was like, well, yeah, I love mine. I happen to love my breasts. And I like said something funny afterwards too. I was like, yeah, these things. And I got her to smile because yeah. there was, you could see, tell that it was kind of like, you know, we have to understand that it's not important. And I get it, but I was kind of like, actually, I think they're pretty rad. Yeah. She the breasts started, are kind of amazing. She started laughing. So I was like, okay, cool. I mean, it's fine <laughs> if you don't like them. I'm, I know it I'll, takes all kinds. I'll keep let's be honest. Advantage. Breasts are amazing. They're they kind of like amazing. tractor beams on your body. I've, I've said this in a very early episode, but we have a lot more subscribers now and we want more guys. Please, 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 please go subscribe and please pay for it if you can and tell your friends, oh, we're going to give away, um, we're going to send out um, uh, uh, an email with some uh, free subscription subscriptions you can give your friends. But um, I reviewed a book uh, years ago called uh, Breasts. It is oh, yeah. such a mind-blowing book. And breasts are so, first of all, one thing she said is like, you know, you got doctors for every kind of thing on your body, your eyes, your nose, your butt, your feet, your stomach, 
Is there a breast doctor just for breasts? No, and there should be because they are the most amazing things ever. And here's one thing that breasts, I mean, they do so many things you don't even know, but check this out. And I can attest that this is true. So when you you give birth, right before, at least in my case, your nipples turn really dark, like dark, almost black. You know why? Because your baby can't see very well yet. And I that's was just going to say, oh my God. The nipple. So, so people can see them at night. They're like little, yeah. Yeah. they are yeah. like literally tractor beams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> it's like the opposite. The baby can see. It's just, it, okay, this book, I highly, it's super fast read. It is so amazing how smart breasts are. I sometimes think that breasts are like these two other living creatures on my body that have sort of like their whole other, they're, they're, they're part of me, but they're also like, they got their own thing going. And I will include in the show notes, a picture that actually got me banned from uh, Facebook or Twitter for a couple of days of Blondie in this white dress. And she's oh, leaning forward. Hot. She's got no, if there, if aliens came down from space and saw this picture, they'd be like, okay, we don't know what's going on here. But She's these, your leader. These two landing pads right here, <laughs> that, that's where we're going. Okay. So hail to the breasts. So I will um, put a link to the book. Back to this story on sex, segregated sex. I mean, I just want to wrap it up before we move on to something else, yep. which is yep. that, um, you know, look, the last line of this, you keep saying, you know, why, why this story and what's the end game? I think the last line of this gives us a, a hint. It says, you know, as long as laws and general practice of youth sports remain rooted in the idea that one sex is inherently inferior Young athletes will continue to learn and internalize that harmful lesson. So I, I disagree with this this takeaway, but I think the author of this piece um, believes that by segregating the sexes, we are inherently saying that one sex is is not as important. Um, there's not as much attention paid to it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, she wants to see women uh, elevated. I would be from a different school that said I want girls to have the uh, experience of playing with other girls and feeling like like feeling comfortable and expressing themselves. And I don't, I, I don't want this mixed gender thing after, after high school, except the only exception I would say is possibly in sports where they don't have a girl's team. Okay. Now that's a different thing. The both examples we get in this story, uh, cause there's also one of a women's field hockey team that, uh, has a boy playing. Well, there isn't another team. There isn't a boys ho field hockey team. Right. And so in that case, okay, if there isn't a girls football team, if girls want to join those teams, great. I mean, one of the things that we learn in this story is that like around 12, I'm sorry, 2,400 high school girls are playing on uh, different high school football teams. Great. I mean, and that that's like double right. the number that there were in 2008. Kick ass. That's cool. But see, it is a bridge too far. It is too, it is Earl Grey to say <laughs> that by extension, Sarah, we should then mix all the sports. Yeah. This is going to, what it's going to do is eliminate girls in sports. It's not going to elevate them. Are you getting weird clicking sounds? Anyway, no. we're just going to keep going. So I was, I'm going to take exception with, with the word that she used in the kicker there, which is inferior. Okay. I'm sorry. Am I inferior to Kobe Bryant? Well, I am inferior. Yeah, to Kobe we Bryant. all are. Like, Let's we be all honest. are, you know, but I'm, I guess, okay. But I don't walk around measuring myself 
against by the, you are inferior by the by the measure of your sports ability. Look, I'm a better baker than Kobe Bryant was. Okay, I'm assuming. I, I I think he probably was. I mean, the thing is that you can't walk around thinking you can't. I hate it when when any of this, especially women, they're like, well, we don't want to be inferior to men. Why the fuck would you be inferior to men? Stop it. Stop throwing that mantle around yourself. You do certain things well. Other people do things well. And that's it. Um, I'm also with you. If they can play on the teams, great. If we want to create some sort of new and interesting things, and if this article does that, great. But the fact of the matter is there are differences, physical differences. People self-select. They do their sports. And I think as you open this thing, like we all know this. So why are we, why are we reading this something that just makes that is illogical? Um, I wonder, like, I, I feel like, is there something called difference feminism? I feel like that's what I am. Well, like, I don't, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, Matt, Matt Welch teases me and says I'm a misogynist, which I'm not at all. What I am, what I don't like is people telling me I have to believe a certain way or I'm not, you know, I'm not pulling along with the team. Well, I'm right. going gonna, gonna to pull along with the things that make sense to me. And if someone said, well, Nancy, you got to believe in this article or you're not a good feminist or you've got to believe in the Times piece about Linda Sarsour. And if you don't, if you're against the Women's March, Nancy, then, you know, you're axiomatically against women. It's like, wow, no, that's not that's just not true. Um, right. I'm allergic to dogma in most of its forms. So yeah. I, I, you know, but I do think, you know, feminism is a fairly elastic term. Um I just I would like a conception that that celebrates and nurtures the difference while also acknowledging the equal value, you know? Equal value, baby. Hey Sarah. Hey Nancy. Sarah, Sarah what's in your hot box? Well, it's interesting you ask. Because I do have something in my hot box. It is I've been listening. I had a bunch of credits on Audible. Um I have a I have a subscription and I never keep up with the with the credits. And so I had a bunch lined up. And so I I wanted to get an audio book. And I ended up getting <clears throat> a, a book from last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's called Crying in H Mart. Have you heard of this? I did. It's about a woman and her mother. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's by the author Michelle Zauner. Uh, she is very cool. She is a young woman who is also the lead singer in a kind of alternative pop band called Japanese Breakfast that are pretty groovy. I'll put some of the music in the outro. Groovy. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, it's like, um, it's kind of like got an eighties sound and, uh, it's just like shimmery or dreamy, you know? Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, she wrote a book that is based on a 2018 essay she wrote for The New Yorker that was called Crying in H Mart. H Mart, if you don't know, is a Korean grocery store. And so this was, you know, she is the daughter of a of a woman that was born in Korea. And this is um, her account of losing her mother at the age of 25. And one of the things she would do is go to H Mart to kind of try to reconnect with her mom. One of the things that this book does is really talk about the ways that food connects us and the ways that food is an expression of love. Um, she had a difficult relationship with her mother. Her mother was uh, a stay-at-home mother, which she sometimes didn't um, 
respect, uh, you know, being raised in this sort of <clears throat> girl power age. And uh, she was also, you know, very focused on the way she looked and certain appearances, you know, but but her mother always, um, you know, was an incredibly loyal and strong woman in her own way. So it's about her making her way back to, you know, an understanding with her mother and then also letting go of her mother. Um, it's re- it's really good. So we will put a link to that, to the audiobook. Um, Nancy? Yeah. What's in your hotbox? Well, I have a brand new uh, hotbox item that I just started dipping into today. So Michael Moynihan, one of the three fellows of the fifth column, we talk about them a lot, and they actually record in this very studio where I'm sitting, um, did a solo recording on his own. He's he's done one or two before with historic. He did one with Patrick Radden Keefe, who we've mm-hmm. talked about, the mm-hmm. author of, of The Snakehead and um, um, Say Nothing, great, incredible books. Um, he with um, he did one with Bob Colicello. Bob Colicello was one of Andy Warhol's best friends. He was very much part of the factory. He was very much part of Studio 54. And he was also the editor-in-chief of Interview Magazine for many, many, many years. And he, um, I guess Michael has known him peripherally for a long time, has read his work. And now I think they, they might live close together or something. Anyway, Michael talked to him earlier in the summer and he released an interview, which is on the fifth column uh, podcast. Now I have to say, so, you know, just like a lot of, a lot of podcasts, you know, some, you get some content for free, some you have to pay for. I don't remember if this is one you have to pay for. Pretty sure this is a members only. Okay. I got to tell you guys, spend your $10 a month or whatever. It's on Substack. They're, these guys are the best. They're so smart. Um, anyway, the, the interview is unbelievably entertaining. I was listening to this, to it this morning as I was going shopping. Uh, He's listening to that. That's fun. He's funny. It's smart. It's historical. I mean, this is the thing. You're talking about someone that he, he was born in 1946. He's talking about his parents and certain things. And his parents were like Goldwater Republicans. And now going through, he's going to go to, he's going to be like a diplomat, but instead he's going to do this in filmmaking. And then it's here and he's meeting Warhol and all these people. And and who was, you know, what kind of royalty was hanging out in New York City in the 70s because there were death threats against the Red Brigade. Against, it's just this like fascinating, funny uh, irreverent, sexy thing. And I'm, I'm only a short way into it, but I, I highly recommend it. Um, it's just really super fun listening. So that's my, um, my latest hot box. Awesome. Yeah. Well, well, um, again, subscribe and I guess rate us. What's, what's that? Yeah. Rate us over on Apple podcasts. That would be nice. Tell your friends, uh, to subscribe. Um, the only last thing I'm going to say is, I have been releasing a book that I wrote called yes. 40 Bucks in a Dream, Stories of Los Angeles. I'm lead releasing, I'm dropping a new chapter every Monday on my Substack, which is nancyrommelman.substack.com or Make More Pie. And think about what that means, make more pie. Let's make more pie, kids. It's not that there's one pie and we all cut it into smaller slices. We just make more pie. It's very sexual. Very, it, well, everything must be. Um, but in any case, I just, the one, the, the chapter I dropped two days ago is called The Biggest Dick in the World. And, you know, if that's not going to get you to go over Uh-oh. and read it, I, I don't know what is. So um, why don't you hop over there? You can subscribe over there if you want, and then it'll just drop into your box uh, Ooh, haha, sexy. Um, every Monday. So um Sarah Hepla, I hope you have a lovely rest of your what is it Wednesday? Is it, it is. Wednesday? It's Wednesday. Okay. And um and we'll see you soon. Keep reaching for the stars, kids. Bye.
the side.